Well, let's do that now. If you uh, take your Bible and turn back to the book of Philippians as we continue in our study today. Um, Did you enjoy hearing from Eric last week, by the way? What a neat work that they're getting involved in, isn't it? And I hope that you guys have had a chance to get on their mailing list and maybe even to interact with him. I wish Heather and their children would have been able to be here. They're a wonderful couple and um, be praying for them. I didn't mention this last week, but they are at about 90% of their support. And that support has to be 100% before they can uh, leave for India. So you can be praying with them uh, for the... um, uh, the completion of that in the next month or so so that they can leave on time. Philippians chapter 2, uh, it's been a few weeks, so let's uh, remind ourselves where we've been. Uh, this is a, a chapter that we've, I think, gleaned a lot from. And uh, this is kind of where we left off last time uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then uh, the text that we looked at last time, do all things, sort of as an application of verses 12 and 13, a, a way that we can work out our salvation, right out of the gate of everything he could pick. What does he say? Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We're like, did you have to go there, Paul? Really? But he does. And what we saw a couple of weeks ago is that how we respond to the disappointments of life, to the things that we want but don't get, to the thing, our plans that don't, are not realized, uh, how we respond actually validates or invalidates the gospel. You know, we might think that somebody who's constantly grumbling or complaining is just kind of annoying to be around, and sometimes that's true. But Paul doesn't say here, you shouldn't grumble or complain because it's wrong. He doesn't say you shouldn't grumble or complain because it's annoying. He, he doesn't just, you know, stop it, you know. Listen to where he goes. Remind ourselves of what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach, now watch the contrast here, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Grumbling and complaining is, is um, part of being human, right? Everybody does it. And when God calls a person out of darkness into light, when he redeems them and converts them and transforms them, when he gives them a new heart, when he gives them the Holy Spirit and begins to transform them from the inside out, just like we we read here, we're working on our salvation with fear and trembling. God is at work within us. He wants to put to death things like grumbling and complaining and disputing. And one of the reasons he wants us to be transformed is not just because grumbling and complaining and conflict is sinful, it certainly is, but because God is wanting to use the body of Christ to draw attention to his gospel, right? And when the people of God are growing and changing, when we are being blameless and innocent when we are living above reproach, that contrasts with the perversion and the crookedness of the world and shows a dying world that needs Christ. There's something going on here. 
God is at work through his gospel, through his people. And the gospel is not just a bunch of people getting together and singing some songs and listening to some guy who talks for an hour and they hang out in these places called churches. That, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about life transformation. It's about God and sinners being reconciled. And when we are transformed, that gives credibility and authenticity and it validates the gospel itself to show that this is not just a religion. This isn't just something that we like to do like a hobby. This is, this is about life transformation. This is about really walking with God and knowing God. And the church is supposed to be a light in contrast to a dark and crooked and perverse world. And what he says is, when we grumble and complain, we're being just like the world. And when we do that, we communicate to a lost world that Christianity is just a game. It's just a religion. It's just something that we do. But, you know, when you get down to it, we're just like anybody else. But he goes a step further, not just that we are to be above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Look at the next part. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. We were talking about this in one of the sessions this weekend. That um, Where's Jesus right now? Well, we know he's present with us spiritually, certainly. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, right? Of course, he's here. He's here present. But bodily, remember Jesus, uh, earlier in the chapter, he took on a human flesh and he came, and, and bodily. So where is Jesus bodily right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. Okay, He is not here. If he's at the right hand of the Father, he's not bodily here. So how does the world know what he's like? How? The church. That's why we're called the body of Christ. Now, we understand this side of heaven, we're not going to be just like Jesus. But we should be growing to be like him. There should be some semblance of Christ in each of us. And and what Paul is saying here is that that transformation, that Christ in us, is a light to a dying and dark world. And you may not think about it, but, but the Bible goes there. The Bible gets in our kitchen with something as minute and common as grumbling and conflict and complaining and says, we need to think about what we're communicating to a lost world that needs Jesus when we don't take transformation in even simple things like that seriously. That's where we've been. And then these verses. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He, he says, I want you to continue in the faith because I have poured so much into you. I don't, I don't want to get to the end of that and find out that my work was in vain. Verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Those are the verses we will be looking at today. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, writes this. My father was an evangelist. In fact... He still is. Even though he doesn't travel now, uh, when I was a boy, there were rare occasions when my mother and sister and I traveled with him and heard him preach. I trembled, 
to hear my father preach. In spite of the predictable opening humor, the whole thing struck me as absolutely blood earnest. There was a certain squint to his eye and a tightening of his lips when the avalanche of biblical texts came to a climax in application. And oh, how he would plead children and teenagers, young singles, young married people, the middle-aged, old people. He would press the warnings and the wooings of Christ into the heart of each person. He had stories, so many stories for each age group, stories of glorious conversions and stories of horrific refusals to believe followed by tragic deaths. Seldom could those stories come without tears. For me as a boy, Piper writes, one of the most gripping illustrations my fiery father used was the story of a man converted in old age. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant. But this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. And at the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as people were dismissed. God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop him from sobbing and saying as the tears ran down his wrinkled face, and oh, what an impact it made on me to hear my father say this through his own tears. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. This was the story that gripped me more than all the stories of young people who died in car wrecks before they were converted. The story of an old man weeping that he had wasted his life. In those early years, God awakened in me a fear and a passion not to waste my life. The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, was fearful and a horrible thought to me. Look at verse 17. But even... If I am being poured out as a drink offering. Stop right there. What's he talking about? You want some help? It's been a long weekend. Uh, I think that's the wrong one, Rich. Do, do you have one on there that's, that uh, I think... It should, it should uh, I think it's part 19. What, what, what do your notes say? Is it 19? Yeah, part 19. Did I say 18? I'm sorry, I told you the wrong one. That's my fault. Okay, while he's bringing that up, what it, how does Paul view his life here? How does he view his life? Okay, totally belonging to Christ. That's true. But, but what picture does he pick? Not a, well, not, not a sacrifice. I mean, it, 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 an offering. What type of offering? A drink offering. Paul said, when I think about my life, it's like this big container with uh, drink offerings were either oil or wine in the nation of Israel. And we'll talk about this in a minute. But Paul said, when I think about my life, here's how I think about it. God has given me, as it were, this, this liquid, this, the, my life. And how I view my life is pouring that out as an offering to God. Look what it says here. 
on, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. What a perspective. He didn't say, I view my life as, um, you know, I have my family and I have my hobbies and I have my church friends and I've got work. And he doesn't say that. Uh, he doesn't say, you know, God comes first, my family comes second, my ministry comes third. And my... He says, when I think about my life, here's, here's the picture. I'm a drink offering. And what is the point of a drink offering? Is the point of the drink offering that it sits on the altar and looks pretty? Is the point of the drink offering to ingest the wine or to use the oil to enjoy yourself? Now, what's the point of the drink offering? To pour it out. To pour it out as a sacrifice to God for the benefit of other people. Wow. Did you catch that? It's all in that little phrase. I think about my life like a drink. There we go. Pouring out life. So, Thank you, uh, Rich. So how did Paul picture his life in ministry? He pictured it as a drink offering. He pictured it as God has given me this life and he gave it to me so that I can pour it out in ministry to other people. That's it. Now, the image of a drink offering is interesting and, and I wanted to take some time just to unpack that a little bit for you. Uh, what's a drink offering? Let's, uh, let's go on a little tour here, okay? Turn back to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. That's the first time we see... Uh, a drink offering being mentioned in Scripture. Uh, you'll remember this uh, when uh, God confirms the covenant with Jacob and um, the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, we see in that process that Jacob is going to offer a sacrifice to God. So Genesis chapter 28, verse 18, uh, following God's... Um, you remember Genesis chapter 12? There's just some background. Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with who? Abraham, right? And uh, we call that the Abrahamic covenant, right? Very very obvious name there. And uh, that, that covenant, which uh, was made with Abraham and, and by extension the nation of Israel, um, Abraham was going to be the father of a great nation, right? They got some land. They were going to be a blessed people. Uh, they were going to be God's special chosen people, and they were going to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens, God told Abraham. And then in, in the following two generations, actually even more than that, God takes that covenant and he confirms it with the next generation. So he confirms it with Abraham's son, Isaac, and then he confirms it with Isaac's son, Jacob. Okay, So this is where it's being confirmed with Jacob. Look at verse 18. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And then he named the he named that place Bethel. Uh, El means God, Beth means house, means house of God, Bethel. Uh, however, previously the name of the city had been called uh, Lutz. Okay, so what is that? It seems simple, but in, in the pre-Mosaic days before the law had been established in the temple and the tabernacle, this was the first example of a drink offering. And then we see it a little more developed as we get into Exodus and Leviticus. So let's, uh, just for sake of time, uh, let's jump into, let's go to Numbers, Numbers chapter 6.
And we'll see this get developed more as the Mosaic law is established in Israel. The, the drink offering, as, a name, as the name implies, is some sort of liquid that gets poured out as an act of worship, as a, an offering, as a sacrifice that's being offered to the Lord. So Numbers chapter 6, we begin to see it uh, as it relates after the law, after the giving of the law in the nation of Israel. Numbers chapter 6, look at verses 15 and 17. This is a particular part of the law given to the Nazarites. And you remember probably the, the, um, the guy who's most famous for being a Nazarite is who? Samson, right. So he's talking about the offerings that the Nazarites would offer. In verse 15, he talks about a basket of unleavened uh, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil along with their grain offerings and their libations. Now, um, how many of you have in your Bible translation something other than the word libations at the end of verse 15? Brian, what does yours say? Drink offerings. Anyone else say drink offering? Okay, someone else have a different translation? Okay. Um, the, the version that I have, the first edition New American Standard, used the term libation, and then I think in subsequent revisions and other translations, they thought that was too vague, so they translated it drink offering. But that's what it is. It's a drink offering. I'm taking some sort of liquid, and I'm pouring it out. Verse 16, the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And then watch what he does with the drink offering. Verse 17, he shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, together with the basket of unleavened cakes. And then the priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its libation. And the idea was you would, you would do the offering, and then you would take the pitcher that had the oil or the wine in it, and then you would pour it on top of the sacrifice. And that was the drink offering. It was, in a sense, an offering you did on top of an existing offering. Uh, turn to Numbers chapter 15, and uh, we see this again. Uh, where are we here? Yeah, I lost my place here. Yes, thank you. And verse 4, And the one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord um, a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil, and you shall prepare wine for the libation, the drink offering, one-fourth of a hin with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. And he goes on to talk about it in verse 7 and in the verses that uh, that follow there. Uh, We see it again in... Uh, chapter 28. Turn over chapter 28. These are all going through different um, uh, different sacrifices. The, number, the book of Numbers is just kind of unfolding for us all the different offerings, all the different sacrifices. And uh, we see it again here um, in chapter 28, verse 7. Then the libation with it shall be a fourth of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a libation of strong drink to the Lord. So we've seen oil, we've seen wine, now we see strong drink, which have been a a mixed drink of some sort. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight as a grain offering of the morning, um, and its libation you shall offer it, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. 
Okay, so that gives you kind of a flavor of what the, the drink offering was. There were times during the sacrifices, during burnt offerings, grain offerings, um, several of the events. We didn't talk about it, but if uh, one of the references there is uh, Leviticus chapter 23. And Leviticus 23 is where God reveals to Moses all of the different festivals, you know, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, um, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Booths, all of those festivals, and they all had associated sacrifices and drink offerings with them. But, but what I, but I want you to see, because th- this is Paul's point, is that he's writing to an audience who would have understood Jewish rituals, and even Gentiles had, had drink offerings, so there was some, um, some common ground there as well. But the idea of the drink offering is you would offer a sacrifice and then you would take a pitcher of wine or strong drink or oil and then you would pour it on top of the sacrifice. Now, was oil valuable in that day? Okay. Was wine and other forms of alcohol, when used in this context, were they valuable? Sure they were. So, so think about it like this. Um, you, you remember, you remember when um, was it was it Mary that came and took the the big vat of uh, vat of perfume and she dumped it on Jesus' feet. Remember that? And you remember one of the what, what one of the disciples say when that happened? Do you remember? Yeah, we could have. That was lots of money she just threw down the drain there, right? What, what's the deal? We could have sold that, and, and then he tried to be all spiritual about it. We could have given the money to the poor. And I think that that's a little bit of the picture of what Paul is trying to communicate as you turn back to Philippians chapter 2 with me. I think what he's trying to communicate is we have been given life, and that life is valuable, is it not? Our life is valuable, and we could use it for all sorts of things, right? Lots of good things. Lots of selfish things. But Paul says, when I think about my life, I think about it as an opportunity to be spent for the cause of Christ. I think about my life as a drink offering that God wants me to pour out for the benefit of other people. And not just benefit in terms of doing moral things, but for the benefit of the gospel. Where's Paul when he's writing this in Philippians? He's in prison. Why is he in prison? Because he's pouring out his life as a drink offering. Is he complaining about it? Is he saying, I was trained at a Pharisee. I could be sitting in, in the nice temple in Jerusalem. I could be in some synagogue as the expert resident teacher, enjoying a nice salary and all the benefits that go with that. But he said, no, when I came to Christ, I understood that my life is not my own. And I have been bought with a price, as he told the Corinthians. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. So what my life is meant for now is to be spent, to be poured out as a drink offering, to minister the gospel and to equip the saints, even if it means going to jail, even if it means writing letters in jail, to tell people what they, what they can do to walk with God and to know God more. Now, what was Paul's response to this perspective? Look at what he says in verse 17 again. He says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I 
What's he say? I rejoice. Look up for a second. Paul discovered what many Christians don't have a clue about today. That there is a unique joy that you cannot gain in any other way other than pouring your life out in ministry for other people, for the cause of Christ and the gospel. Why would David Gibson leave his vet practice to go to a third world country to experience conditions that you and I would complain about and would probably turn right around? Why would he do that? Because he loves Jesus. Because he knows his life is not his own. Why would Jack and Susie be spending their retirement going to Cambodia? Why? Because there's joy in it. Paul says, My life is a drink offering. I'm pouring it out on the sacrifice and service of your faith. And I rejoice. And he says, and I just don't want to rejoice and know that. I want to, what does he say there? I want to share that joy with you. I want you guys, Philippians, y'all, Philippians, to know the joy that I have. How are you going to know that joy? What does he call the Philippians to do also? Look at verse 18. And so you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. Now, I don't think, I don't think what he's saying is, be happy because I'm happy. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, I want you to know the joy that I know. And you know how I discovered joy? By pouring out my life in ministry for other people, for seeing that my life is not my own, for seeing that joy in life is not golf, it's not hobbies, it's not friends, it's not TV, it's not other things, it's not relationships ultimately, it's not pursuing dreams and hopes, it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have one life. But Paul doesn't guilt trip them. You know, he's not using the guilt trip here. You guys should really be out there preaching the gospel too. Come on. That's not what he does. He says, no, no, no. I am jealous that you would have the same joy I have. I want you to have the joy that I'm experiencing in ministry, in pouring out my life for other people. He's enticing them. You ready? Through joy. And some of you know that. Some of you are here and you're nodding your head because you know the joy that comes in ministry. You know the joy of being inconvenienced for the cause of Christ. You know the joy of sacrificing time with your family or your money or your reputation or moving up at the corporate ladder. Giving up time, doing things you enjoy to do things that will last eternally. You know that. And Paul, I think by implication, is enticing us. He wants us to know that joy too. 
He wants us to know the joy of pouring out our life in ministry to others. Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 6. And he said, um, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And the obvious question from all of that is, what is this heavenly treasure? What is this eternal treasure? What is it? I know it's been a long weekend, but this is the part where you talk. What is the treasure? What is it, Rich? It's people. Yeah, it's rela- yeah, it's relationships. Yeah, exactly. What can you take to heaven with you? The only thing you can take to heaven with you is people. Right? And I think what Jesus is saying is, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life storing up things that don't matter. Don't, don't waste your life spending it on things ultimately that will not matter. Now he's not, I mean, obviously, okay, we can't take food to heaven, but we need food to live, okay? So he's not saying, you know, don't eat or don't drink or don't do, don't pay your bills. No, okay, you don't understand, he's not, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, don't make your life ultimately about those things. Don't, don't put all of your energy, all of your time, all of your eggs in the basket of things that will burn ultimately. Put them into something that will yield eternal dividends. Why are we here? Why are we still here? If we know Jesus, boom, we go to be with him. I mean, do you like struggling as a, as a converted sinner? Do you enjoy that struggle? I don't enjoy that struggle. I'd much rather be in heaven with, the, with the, the body of sin done away with, finally. But we're here to store up eternal treasure. We're here to bring people with us by ministering the gospel to others. And, and part of the reason, and this is where Paul is going here, this is the angle he's making here, part of the reason we don't see life like that. We get caught up in our hobbies. We get caught up in other things. We get caught up in, in music and movies and entertainment. We, we get caught up in all those things. Part of the reason that we get caught up is we are viewing our life wrongly. Our life is not our own. It's, there was a time that it was. But when we came to Christ, He bought us. Right? Therefore, we are to glorify God in our bodies. He bought us with the precious price of His Son. So our life is not our own. And, and Paul says, here's a way, guys, Philippians, and by implication, Grace Bible Churchers, here is a way, Paul says, that I have found to think about my life that helps me to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, you ready? I'm a drink offering. And so are you. God has given us a measure of, of life liquid. And he says, pour it out. Pour it out wisely. Pour it out strategically. Don't try to save as much of it as you can till the end. Don't pick it up and drink it and enjoy it yourself. It's not for us. 
the things we have, the things we enjoy, the benefits, the privileges, the, the gifts, the talents, the families, none of that is for us to enjoy alone. It's to be spent. It's to be used. It's to be pursued in a life of ministry so that people come to the, to the gospel, so they come to Christ. Pour it out. Pour it out for the unbelievers in your life. Pour it out in the ministries you're involved in here. Pour it out for the unbelieving family members you have that you, you don't want to go be with because they're hard people to be with. Pour out your life for unbelievers. Pour out your life in your ministry. Pour it out for your children, those of you that are parents and you're, you're raising those little ones to know Christ. Pour it out. Pour it out when you see people at Walmart that need Christ. Pour it out in the community. Pour it out in your family. Piper continues. Another riveting force in my young life, small at first, but oh so powerful over time was a plaque that hung in our kitchen over the sink. We moved into that house when I was six, so I suppose I looked at those words on that plaque almost every day for 12 years till I went away to college at 18. It was a simple piece of glass painted black and on the back with gray link chain snug around it for a border and for a hanging. And on the front, in old English script, painted in white, were these words. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. To the left beside these words was painted green, a green hill with two trees and a brown path that disappeared over the hill. How many times as a little boy and then as a teenager with pimples and longings and anxieties I looked at that brown path, my life, and wondered what would be over that hill. But the message was clear. You get one pass at life, that's all, only one, and the lasting measure of that life is Jesus Christ. I am 57, Piper says, as I write, and that very plaque hangs today on the wall by our front door. I see it every time I leave home. What would it mean to waste my life? That was a burning question, or more positively, what, it would, what would it mean to live life well, not to waste it? How to finish that sentence was the question. I was not even sure how to put the question into words, let alone what the answer might be. What was the opposite of not wasting my life, to be sex, successful in a career or to be maximally happy or to accomplish something great or to find the deepest meaning and significance or to help as many people as possible. Or to serve Christ to the full, to glorify God in all that I do. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Pour out your life for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this life that you've given us. We know it's not our own. Would you give us the grace to pour it out as you see fit that Christ might be displayed more, 
might, might, so that people might come to Christ, so that your church might be built up, and that we might be a light in this dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.